remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text. Pay attention to God's gospel. And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Thus far the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word, which is truth. And we thank You that it sanctifies us by the power of Your Spirit. Help us today to understand Your Word and to be doers of it as we go from here transform our hearts and our minds and conform us into the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ, through Your Word and Spirit. And We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I debated whether to say much if anything, about all of the controversy in the world of scholarship behind this passage at the beginning of John 8. And what I'll do is I'll just give a a one or two, maybe three minute overview of what's going on. I'm not going to try to settle anything or make any arguments. I'll tell you where I stand and then we'll just launch into the text and you can do studying on your own. If you're interested in diving into the subject I'm about to talk to you about, then you can ask me and I can give you two or three or four or five good articles to read depending on how interested you are. Well, in the second half of the 19th century, the 1800s, 
there was a shift in scholarship, scholarship so that scholars began questioning, and this is conservative scholars, whether certain verses, sometimes larger passages, were really in the original text, were really inspired. And they concluded that some passages, some verses, made their way in through the insertion of scribes. And that's, that does happen. Some scribes tried to craft their own theology by inserting it into the text of Scripture almost all the time. 97% of the time, it's very clear that they did that, did that, and we all agree that they did that. There are a few places where there are debates. Well, at the end of the 19th century, uh, the scholarship shifted so that most scholars now question whether the passage that we just read is supposed to be at the beginning of John 8. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, how some of the earlier manuscripts don't have it. Now, there are different levels of, of belief on this. Um, most scholars don't believe that it's in John 8. Some do. And I think those arguments are right uh, and haven't been dealt with. But there's one level down from that. Even those who don't think it's in John 8, many of them, not all of them, many of them think that it may have been in another part of John or another part of in Luke somewhere. And then one level down from that, those who don't think it belongs anywhere in Scripture still think, and this is virtually everyone, that it's a true story, that it actually happened, that it's a factual account. Where I come down, very, uh, I'm very convinced, with really no doubt in my mind, that this belongs in Scripture and in John and in John 8, right where we have it. So, if you're interested in more on that, you can get with me and I can send you some really egghead-type stuff to read on that. Well, it was early in the morning in Jerusalem, our text says. The sun was coming up, so we can imagine the purple shadows falling among the columns of the temple. A crowd had already gathered around Jesus, who in rabbinical fashion sat down to teach the people. Jesus had spent the previous night, our text says, not far away on the Mount of Olives. And that was where his that's where he slept when he was in Jerusalem. That was his home, away from home, it appears. And we see something of the popularity of Jesus in verse 2. Everyone wanted to attend his Bible studies. No matter the hour, Jesus was able to attract large crowds, even at sunrise. These people woke up early, walked to the temple to hear his authoritative, life-giving words. They couldn't get enough of his teaching inside of them. Even those who were opposed to Jesus were often overwhelmed and even taken in by his teachings. In verse 3, though, the serenity of this early morning Bible study in the temple was suddenly shattered when the scribes and the Pharisees dragged a woman that they had caught in adultery to the front of the crowd. They parade her before Jesus and the people. And they say to Jesus in verses 4 and 5, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses 
in the law, commanded that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This woman was a pawn in these Jewish leaders' political game to get rid of Jesus. Would he condemn the adulterous woman or would he show mercy? Either way, the scribes and Pharisees would have grounds to discredit Jesus, their rival, and send him away defeated, humiliated. No matter which move he made, they figured it would be game over for this would-be Messiah named Jesus. So it was a trap. Verse 6 tells us exactly what their motive was. This they said to test him, that they might have something to accuse him of. These legalistic leaders in Jerusalem were accusers, just like their father, the devil. They were self-righteously accusing this woman and they would love nothing more than to find a good reason, a solid reason, to accuse Jesus, their arch enemy. So they set a trap for Him. Will Jesus condemn the woman or show mercy? As usual, Jesus refused to play their insidious game. The second half of verse 6 says that His initial response was just to pretend that He didn't even hear them. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with His finger as though He did not hear. And then in verses 7-11, to Jesus proceeds to turn the tables on them. He exposes their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy. And He does this while caringly confronting the adulterous woman. He confronts her without condemning her. He avoids the trap and He introduces to these self-righteous leaders a different kind of justice. A justice that is merciful while being no less just and righteous. Jesus teaches us that the mercy and patience of our pardoning God never compromise the righteousness and the holiness of our God. His mercy toward the woman will require her to turn from her sins. And it will eventually require Him to die on a cross. You see, His righteousness and His justice are not compromised. The grace of God is free for us, but it wasn't free for God. He paid the price. But we need to back up and look at verses 6-11 to more closely and see what John's doing here. The trap that these religious leaders set for Jesus is a clever one. If Jesus doesn't uphold the stoning of this woman, then He confirms all the, the authorities' suspicions that He stands light on the law of Moses. And this suspicion, these suspicions had already been aroused by Jesus back in John 5, for example, when He healed on the Sabbath. But this time, the stakes are higher. It's one thing to heal on the Sabbath and quite another thing to go soft on the punishment for adultery as it's laid out and established in Deuteronomy 22. 
if Jesus doesn't condemn this woman to death, if he doesn't get on board with her stoning, then he becomes a self-proclaimed heretic, a lawbreaker. And the rejection of him is clearly justified. That's one side of the trap. The other side of the trap is the expectations of the people. Jesus is known for His compassion for the downtrodden and His mercy towards sinners just like this woman. A hard-line judgment by Jesus might have discredited Him in the eyes of the common people. So, it's not the woman who's on trial. Jesus is being put on trial. The woman is just a pawn. The intentions of the scribes and the Pharisees are focused on Jesus, not this woman. And they want to test Him. They want to put Him on trial. His response is significant. He bends down and He begins to write. Not on paper, but on the ground. And He doesn't write with a pen. He writes with His finger on the ground. There's been a lot of speculation during the last 2,000 years about what Jesus wrote on the ground. Wouldn't we like to know what He wrote? It's, it's just a, a curiosity that the church has never been able to shake. Did He write a passage from the Old Testament? And if so, which one? Or did he, did he write a message directly to these men? One interesting and very old, the oldest, I think, interpretation that has a lot going for it is that the writing on the ground somehow pointed back to Jeremiah 17, 13. In Jeremiah 17, 13, the prophet says, you don't have to turn there, just you can listen, but do listen. Those who turn away from God will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken Yahweh, who is the spring of living water. This interpretation actually makes a lot of sense in this context. Because back in John 7, Jesus said that He is the spring of living water. The message of Jesus in the book of John as a whole is that the rejection of Him is their rejection of God. In turning away from Jesus, they've turned away from Yahweh. Because Jesus is Yahweh in human form. Jesus is that spring of living water that Jeremiah 17.13 is talking about. Let me read it again. Those who turn away from God will be written in the dust because they have forsaken Yahweh who is the spring of living water. Some interpreters have even included that Jesus must have been writing the names of the religious leaders on the ground. The names of those who are turning away from God at that very moment, who are forsaking Yahweh because they turned away from Jesus and forsook Jesus, the spring of living water. Well, even if that's not the right guess about what Jesus wrote, and at the end of the day, all we have are guesses, and we cannot be dogmatic, we can still see that this story in John 8, is a fulfillment of sorts of Jeremiah 17.13. Whatever Jesus wrote in the dust had the effect of exposing the unbelief, the apostasy, the turning away of the scribes and Pharisees standing before Him who had refused to drink from the spring 
of living water standing right before them and speaking to them the words of life. But you see, more important than what Jesus wrote is that He wrote. And and that's why I believe we're not told what He wrote. John doesn't invite us to spend a lot of time speculating on what Jesus wrote. It's not important. Otherwise, He would have told us the emphasis is not on the content of what He wrote. No, John is crafting an image for us. He intends to give us an impression that tells us something important about Jesus. This symbolic action tells us something important about the identity of Jesus. The key phrase in verse 6 is, with His finger. Why is it significant that Jesus wrote and that He wrote with His finger? What does this act tell us about Jesus? We'll return to those questions in a minute after we talk about verse 7. And the reason I'm going to do that is that verse 8 is also a verse where Jesus writes on the ground. So he does it twice in verse 6 and in verse 8. So when we get to verse 8, we'll come back and talk about what this symbolic act means. So I'll leave you in suspense while we talk about verse 7. While Jesus is writing on the ground, the questions from the scribes and the Pharisees continue to come. So in verse 7, he gets up off the ground and he says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her first. This isn't a request. It's a command. It's an imperative. In terms of Greek grammar, the statement in verse 7 is in the imperative mood. Jesus is ordering the stoning of this woman. You see, He's not denying or rejecting the stoning law in Deuteronomy 22. He's upholding it. He's not going soft on the law. He's telling them to apply the law. He's the hardliner here. He's commanding them to commence the stoning of this woman. He only makes one simple qualification. The first stone should be thrown by the one among you who is without sin. After all, for God's law to be applied perfectly, we're really going to be hardliners here, for it to be upheld in its purest and truest sense, judgment against sin must be executed by a perfect Judge, a righteous judge. God's law points to a judgment against sin that goes beyond sinners punishing other sinners. True judgment against sin, the one that's going to happen on the final day, happens when a sinless judge punishes sinners. And so the only demand Jesus makes here is that God's law be upheld and applied Perfectly, righteously, in its purest and truest sense. So far from being light on the law, Jesus shows that He loves the law more than they do. Jesus has just wrecked the clever trap that they set for Him. He cuts through their self-righteousness 
with this, with this one statement in verse 7. And you'll notice this is the only thing that Jesus says to these legalists in this whole account. In the whole scene. You see, the problem with these religious leaders is not that they want to apply the stoning law. That's not the problem. Their problem is that they don't actually care about God's law. They don't care about what God actually wants. Jesus does. Jesus cares about the law, but they don't. They really wanted to uphold God's law. They would they would have brought the adulterous man as well. If this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, where's the man? There was a man there. Did they let him go? Are they not worried about justice for the man? These leaders don't care about this woman or her sin or upholding God's law or true justice or righteousness. They care only about using this situation as a pretext to trap and accuse and defeat Jesus. So, in typical fashion, Jesus catches them in their own net. He speaks past the legal maneuvering right into the heart of these scribes and Pharisees. He demands that they truly uphold the law. He commands them to apply the stoning law in Deuteronomy 22. You'll notice He never tells them not to do it. He only tells them to do it. They can't there's no way they could say he told them not to do it. He orders the sinless judge among them to start throwing stones first. Go for it. Do it now. And that's all he says. And then he starts writing on the ground again in verse 8. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. So this brings us back to the questions that we asked in verse 6. What does it mean that Jesus is writing on the ground? What, what's this symbolize? What's this tell us about Jesus? What's significant about the finger? And why does John leave out the, the, the detail about the finger in verse 8? All of this is important. This is very important carefully crafted very carefully crafted probably edited revised the words that he chooses and where he puts the words in the text are very important it's going to get a little bit dense but i think i think it'll be fun so just try to hang with me here before we turn to exodus 31 to see what john is doing and how he's echoing the old testament we need to notice two things about verse 6 and verse 8 and just kind of put them in our minds, in the back of our minds. First, verse 6 says that Jesus wrote with His finger. Okay, we've already covered that. Second, both verse 6 and verse 8 use the verb wrote to write. He wrote. But the two Greek words are a little different from each other. In verse 6, the Greek verb for wrote is katagrapho. In verse 8, the Greek verb for wrote is simply grapho. The second half of kata, grapho. These two words are synonymous. There's really no discernible difference between the meaning of these two words. But you'll see why it's important in a moment why John used these two different words. 
And just keep in your mind also that katagrapho, the one he uses first, is extremely uncommon. So uncommon, in fact, that it's the only place in the entire New Testament that it's used. Most of the time it's just grapho. But he uses katagrapho for a specific purpose. So just tuck that away. Verse 6, katagrapho. Verse 8, grapho. To write. Now, turn in your Bible back to Exodus 31. We'll first look at a verse in Exodus chapter 31 and then a verse in Exodus chapter 32. So just stay open to Exodus 31 and 32 until we've looked at chapter 32. Exodus is the second book in the Bible right after Genesis. Exodus 31, and we're going to look at verse 18. Exodus 31, 18. It's the very last verse in Exodus 31. And this is a summary statement that comes at the end of the giving of the law to Moses. Exodus 31, 18. And when God had made an end of speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony. Two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Tablets of stone. Stone tablets. Written with the finger of God. Written with the finger of God. Yahweh wrote with His finger. And John 8, 6 makes a point to tell us that Jesus wrote with His finger. And the point is, and we'll see that we'll develop this further, but the point that I'm making here, that John's making, is that the finger of Jesus is the finger of God. The finger that wrote the commandments, the law of Moses that these Pharisees and scribes are interested in, the finger that wrote the tablets, uh, the, the law and the tablets of stone is the finger, the same finger, writing on the ground in John 8. This is important because Jesus is being challenged to uphold the law. The law of Moses. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Jesus' response is to this question is to write with His finger as only God does so when he's acting like he hasn't heard them he's actually responding to them and this symbolic action Jesus is saying without words that it wasn't Moses who wrote the the law Moses didn't author the stoning law it was me it was Jesus Jesus is the author of the law he wrote it with his finger Moses was only an instrument that Jesus used to give the law to His people. Okay? There's another connection with Exodus that we need to consider. Now, flip over or look over at Exodus 32 and go down to verse 15. Exodus 32, verse 15. And as you turn to Exodus 32, 15, remember what I said about the verbs that mean to write in John 8, 6 and 8, 8. Katagrapho in verse 8, grapho in verse 6. Now look at Exodus 32.15. And as I read it, count how many times it uses the verb to write. It's, it's written is the word. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain and the tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other, they were written. So how many times is written used here? Twice. Both in the second half of the verse. The tablets were written on both sides. On one side and on the other, they were written. 
And the interesting thing about these two verbs is that in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is what the apostles and, and Jesus used and read and quoted, in the Greek Old Testament in, at Exodus 32, 15, the first verb translated written is katagrapho. And the second one is grapho. The tablets were written, katagrapho, on both sides. On one side and on the other, they were written, grapho. So John, by using these same two verbs close together, as Exodus 31 does here, John is drawing our attention to Exodus. Exodus 31 and then 32. He even goes out of his way to do this by using a very uncommon word, katagrapho. And putting it first with grapho closely behind it, just as Exodus 32.15 does. John's trying as hard as he can to point his readers, us, back to Exodus. These two verses, 31.18 and 32.15. And this explains why John, some, some people ask, some interpreters ask, why John takes the time and space in this Gospel, or whoever wrote it, to tell us about both instances of Jesus bending down to write on the ground in verse 6 and then again in verse 8. Of course, we know that it really happened that way, but, but the authors of the Gospels are always condensing. They're, they don't give us everything that happened. They can't. They condense. They usually leave more out of the, of the scene than they include because there's so much that they could include. So why tell us twice about this symbolic action? And you're not even telling us what he wrote. So, and, then you're, and then you're telling it twice. Well, verse 6 draws our attention to Exodus 31.18 where the finger of God writes the law on the stone tablets. And then verse 8 is necessary because it draws our attention to Exodus 32.15 which uses katagrapho and grapho in a short space just as John does in verse 6 and verse 8 together. The significance of all this is that Jesus is the author of the law. And His finger is the finger of God. When the scribes and Pharisees challenge Him with the legality of God's law, they're speaking directly to its author. They're challenging the lawmaker Himself. And sandwiched between verse 6 and verse 8, is verse 7, where he says, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And he, he puts that right there between these two for a reason. Stoning in the Old Testament was a symbolic act. Uh, that There was more than one way to kill a person, to put a person to death. The stones that killed a person represented the law, which were written on stone tablets whenever a person was stoned he was being condemned by the law written on stones the stones that killed were symbolic of the law that condemned so when Jesus orders the sinless among them to throw the first stone he's essentially saying that whoever has never broken the law whoever has an unbroken stone tablet as it were should be the first to throw it at the woman. So there's a lot of language here 
that John uses that echoes Exodus 31, 32 with writing and finger and stone. Verse 9, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left and the woman standing in the midst. We see the power of the Word of God because it convicted them at some level. It, did, it didn't lead them to repentance, but it did convict their consciences, but they did not let that lead them to repentance. Those who had come to shame Jesus now leave in shame. The accusers leave as the accused. The judges become the judged. The condemners become the condemned. They leave dramatically and ceremoniously. One by one, it says. Beginning with the older gentlemen and all the way down to the younger ones. Jesus is described here as being left there alone. It says alone to emphasize that He alone meets that qualification that He just mentioned in verse 7. Jesus alone is the one who is without sin. He's the only one who's never broken the law that He wrote on the stone tablets with His own finger. So, the question, is Jesus going to stone the woman? Will the only sinless judge among them condemn her? Verse 10, when Jesus raised Himself up and saw no one but the woman, He said to her, Woman, where are these accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Our Lord's final statement there in verse 11 summarizes the two-sided nature of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The first side of the Gospel is this. Your eternal judge who wrote the law that you have broken with his own finger doesn't accuse you. He doesn't condemn you for breaking his law. He's decided not to stone you with his tablet stones. And he's done what it took to do that. To accomplish that. Others may accuse you. You may accuse yourself even after you've been forgiven. The demons will certainly accuse you. The devil is the chief accuser of the brethren. But no one can condemn you because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The only one who has the authority, the moral and divine authority to condemn you is the one who took all of your condemnation upon Himself on the cross. Jesus took your stoning for you. God condemned Jesus on the cross in your place. The, the, the stone tablets fell on Jesus on the cross. There's no one in existence, nothing in existence that can condemn you except for Jesus. And Jesus 
has said to you, I don't condemn you either. This, this is the first side of the good news. And there's a second side. And if you haven't really experienced the first side, the second side seems like a downer, a major qualification, possibly bad news. The second side is go and sin no more. God has freed you from the curse of the law so that you might live in accordance with His law and His will. That's what it means to be free. Did you hear Paul in Galatians 5 that we read earlier? It is for freedom, liberty, that God has set you free. And true freedom in that passage is walking in the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, producing the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul even says that those who don't will not inherit the kingdom of God. A person whom God has freed from the penalty of sin will also be a person whom God is freeing from the power of sin. When God freed you from sin's guilt, He immediately went to work in freeing you from sin's grip. Salvation always produces transformation. Transformation always follows salvation. They go together. You never get one without the other. Jesus has never said to anyone anywhere, neither do I condemn you, even if you go and keep on sinning just as you always have with no repentance or, or fruit or growth in grace and godliness. Instead, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more is not an oppressive demand. It's a gracious command to live in freedom. Living in repentance and obedience to God is the only path to true and everlasting freedom. Freedom that lasts forever. Go and sin no more is the road that leads to heaven. The narrow road that leads to heaven where there is no sin. And where we will finally be freed completely from sin's power and sin's presence. If Jesus has put you on that road, the road called go and sin no more, if you're putting sin to death and being led by the Spirit, as Paul says, then you're on the right trajectory. You're not perfect and you won't be in this life, but you're on the right trajectory and your destiny is heaven and eternal freedom from sin. That's how it works. That's how God's salvation works. When Jesus becomes your Savior, He becomes your Lord. If you're not on that road, if you're not growing in grace and godliness, if you're not making any headway in the fight against sin, if you're not walking with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, then you're still under God's condemnation. I'm not saying that you're saved by your obedience, but I am saying that you were saved for obedience. You were saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by repentance and obedience. Sanctification. 
To receive the Lord's mercy means living from now on for the Lord's glory. Mercy from God calls for life unto God. In closing, there are two lessons that I want us to glean from this passage as a whole. Number one, you're not the righteous judge. Jesus is. You're not the righteous judge. Jesus is. You're not the judge, and when you make yourself an accuser and a condemner of someone else, whether in your own mind privately or publicly, you put yourself in grave spiritual danger. I've seen this over and over, and often it doesn't end well. Some of you have fallen into the trap of thinking that someone else's sins are worse than your sins against God. You've made yourself someone's accuser and judge and condemner. Now you might be telling yourself, you're very likely telling yourself, that your anger toward this person is righteous anger, justified anger. But the truth is, you seldom, if ever, get this worked up about your own sin. Some of you are in the clutches of this right now. Most of us have been in the clutches of this at some point or another. If this is where you are, repent quickly. It leads you down roads that it led these scribes and Pharisees down. Remember what the Lord told Cain before he killed his brother. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's hard to repent of this sin when it's got you pinned down, but it only gets harder as time goes on. When you let someone else's sin or offense or just something you disagree with them about become your focus, you lose sight of the depth of your own sinfulness. The Jewish leaders did this in a multitude of ways, in a multitude of stories in the Gospels. When you, find, when you find it hard to even imagine forgiving someone else, you've become out of touch with how much Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That's a high standard. Forgiving as the Lord forgives. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. By nature, apart from God's grace, you would have been justly accused, justly condemned. None of us is a righteous judge. No one among us is without sin. We're all forgiven sinners. Jesus alone is the one who is without sin. He is the only legitimate, in the truest sense, accuser and judge. And yet, He doesn't accuse you or condemn you. 
So what business do you have accusing and condemning others? Jesus is also a merciful judge. He is a merciful, righteous judge. The gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims a remarkable paradox. The judge of humanity received humanity's punishment. The author of God's law received the curse of the law for you. The giver of life embraced death for you. The one who was truly without sin became sin for you. This is why Jesus can say to you, neither do I condemn you. This is the miracle of the grace of God. There is no no wonder in the ancient world or in the modern world greater than this. Turning water into wine, healing a dying boy with a word, feeding over 5,000 with a sack lunch, walking on a storm-tossed sea. None of these, and not all of these put together, compares with those words in verse 11. Neither do I condemn you. And this sentence, and in the heart of mercy that lay behind this sentence, is all your hope and all your salvation forever. The righteous judge is also a merciful judge. And his mercy cost him greatly. You see, it cost Jesus the hell of Calvary to be able to tell you Neither do I condemn you. In response to this amazing grace, go and sin no more. Let's pray. God, we need your help to walk in obedience. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for taking our condemnation for us. We ask that your spirit that is in us, who is among us, would lead us so that we would be led by Him and produce the fruit of Him. In particular, transform our hearts and minds so that we have a spirit of forgiveness as Jesus had. That we are tender-hearted as Jesus is. Accomplish these things in us, God, by the power of Your Spirit and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.